Welcome everyone to this month's BJJ podcast. I am Andrew Duckworth and a warm welcome to our last podcast of the year and of the decade from your team here at the Bone and Joint Journal. It is now over a year since we commenced our new podcast series and from all the team we would like to thank our readers and listeners for the comments and support we have received so far as well as to our many authors and guest interviewers who have taken part. In the past year we've covered a range of topics and we've heard from a range of authors from across the globe. We've spoken to guests all the way from the US to India, including a fascinating dialogue with Mr. David Beveland on the role of follow-up post-total hip replacement, as well as last month's very informative discussion with Dr. Matt Abdul from the Mayo Clinic on the survivorship of primary total knee replacement for osteonecrosis of the knee. Through this, along with the series of podcasts that accompanies our supplements from the American Hip and Knee Society closed meetings, we do hope these are improving the accessibility and visibility of the studies we published for both you as our readers, as well as for our many authors. So moving on to this month's study, as you know, over the next 15 to 20 minutes or so, we'll be covering a range of aspects from the chosen work, emphasizing the important points of how the study has been designed, as well as the key findings from the data and how these potentially fit into each of your day-to-day clinical practices. We also hope to give you a behind-the-scenes insight, which we say, into how the authors have developed the study and give them an opportunity to put forward the key findings of their work. So today I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Azim Malik from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio to discuss their study entitled Postoperative Opioid Cessation Rates Based on Preoperative Opioid Use, an Analysis of Common Orthopedic Procedures, which will be published in the December edition of the BJJ. Welcome, Azim, and a big thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for having me. So, Azim, if we move straight on to the paper, the aim of this study was to characterize the relationships between pre- and postoperative opioid use um, among patients undergoing common elective orthopedic procedures, which is obviously a hugely topical area of interest, not just in medicine, but globally, as in, in, in recent years, the negative consequences of widespread opioid use are becoming increasingly clear. So if you could just give us a brief introduction to the paper and where you currently feel the, the literature stands in this area with regards to the opioid crisis and MSK pathology. So definitely an excellent question to start off with. So, well, simply stating the opioid crisis in the United States is currently a major public health concern. I mean, uh, the, our rates of opioid usage are pretty much the highest in the world right now. Canada is a close second, and obviously Europe and the UK are nowhere as close as we are. Um, now, coupled with the fact that we have been using opioids continuously over the past two decades, and we have seen improvements in access to care for our patients, and more and more individuals are now getting elective surgeries, which were obviously not of the norm two decades ago. Um, it's, it, it's not exactly surprising that we are giving these medications more often at this point. Um, but the more concerning fact is now that we know that this is not a great drug to begin with, it's not a great uh, pain medication, as you said, given those negative outcomes, um, we're, we're trying our best to somehow uh, build up evidence so that we can launch some form of protocols or some form of uh, control measures in which we can try to limit the use of this medication over the coming years. That's a really good summary. I think, like you say, it is a, a, a major public health concern across the globe now, isn't it, really? And But what do we know, Azim, already about preoperative opioid use and cessation following orthopedic procedures? Is there much out there in the literature already? So I think over the past five years or so, uh, thanks to all these big data sets which uh, the U.S. has produced, we are seeing a, a surge of literature surrounding opioid usage, uh, particularly in orthopedic procedures. Um, and what we already know that most orthopedic conditions, uh, particularly, uh, are degenerative elective um, surgeries. And I mean, they're pretty much debilitating conditions. So obviously, patients do end up taking these pain medications before they ever come to a doctor to seek care for their 
surgical opinion, essentially. Um, so for now, I can tell you that cessation rates are being studied, um, but we're still building up the ground foundation at this point. So we really need more evidence. The more evidence we have, the better knowledge we're going to uh, build up to uh, understand on how we can control this. Yeah, yeah. So it's very much in its infancy, isn't it? Really, even though it's been a problem for for many for many years. So, so sort of given given all that, Azim, what was sort of the aim and, and I suppose the hypothesis of your study, and how were you sort of aiming to aiming to address those limitations? Um, so, well, so the hypothesis of the study was essentially to characterize uh, one: what is the rate of chronic preoperative opioid usage in patients who are undergoing elective orthopedic surgeries? And then we also aim to study two was to look at chronic post-op opioid usage in these individuals. And then we tried to see the relation to see if whether chronic pre-operative opioid usage impacted post-op opioid usage too. Okay, great, great. That's a great summary of what, of what the, the paper aims to do. So if we move on to, I suppose, the, how the study was put together, it was a, lar- a large retrospective study using large data, big data from the Humana National Claims Database in the US, and it covered a period just under 10 years, which was from 2007 to the third quarter of 2016. Um, so just for our listeners, someone who won't be really very familiar with that database, could you give a brief overview of it and what data it routinely collects, and I suppose how accurate it, it is? Uh, so, well, so I can tell you that it's a private peer commercial data set, which means that obviously there are so many private insurance companies present in the U.S., so this is just one of the many right now. Um, and it's based on billing instances, so anytime an insurance uh, company uh, reimburses a provider or hospital for anything that the enrollee um, seeks healthcare utilization for, it gets recorded into that data set, and it is made available to researchers to actually access it identify patients, do uh, analysis, uh, look at medication usage and all the, these kind of things. Okay. And, it's, and it's, I've seen it obviously before in many other papers. It's quite commonly used in the literature, isn't it, as a, as a data source? Exactly. Um, so moving on to the actual crux of the study. So if you give us briefly a, basically a brief overview of the inclusion exclusion criteria for the study, which you lay out very nicely in, a, in a, the flow diagram in the paper. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll briefly summarizing, we identified patients with billing instances of primary or index total joint orthoplasties, carpal tunnel surgery, rotator cuff repairs, and spinal fusions. Uh, we then went on to exclude patients who were undergoing a, prim- uh, a non-index or a non-primary surgery, a revision case, uh, patients who are undergoing surgery for fracture or trauma indications, and those who were undergoing surgery for scoliosis. So we were essentially trying to capture a perfect elective degenerative p- uh, patient population. Um, and then we also uh, aim to ensure that we were only including individuals who maintain the coverage with that specific insurance company over the one-year period so as to prevent any dropouts. Um, yeah, so it's very robust inclusion exclusion criteria, really, and very much looking at those core elective procedures. Exactly. Yeah, okay. And what sort of data was collected with regards, particularly, I suppose, general data, and also with regards to opioid use, and how you grouped those for the, for the study itself? So I think the table itself in the paper is a bit tricky to understand, which is why I, I'll try explaining this, but I would still urge listeners to actually go and read up the paper to get the a better gist of how we characterized these uh, preoperative opioid usage. Um, but essentially, preoperative opioid usage was categorized basically into two groups. Uh, those who had more than six months of continuous uh, use prior to undergoing surgery, which was defined as four or more prescriptions, 
and those who had a history of at least more than six months of use, but then stopped within three months prior to surgery. So essentially that defined an opioid free or weaning uh, period. And then post-op opioid usage was characterized into chronic, which was essentially eight or more prescriptions within the whole year after the surgery. And then we also had two additional sub-definitions within this chronic opioid use definition, which were basically those individuals uh, who stopped taking chronic opioid use or those who had only short-term opioid use, which was uh, four more prescriptions within a period of three months. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a great summary. Like I say, it's it's quite complex, but I think it's a, a, a good way to group them, and that's a really nice explanation of it. So in terms of the analysis you performed, obviously, they're, again, they're very nicely laid out in the manuscript. But for our listeners, could you just give us a bra- basic, simple overview of what was performed? So in a really brief summary, what we were trying to do is we essentially took hold of a multivariate logistic regression model, and then we use that to assess the independent impact of pre-op opioid usage on post-op opioid usage while controlling for multiple covariates, which included obviously baseline comorbidity burden, age of patients, uh, other um, comorbidity measures essentially. So we're trying to control for any possible confounders that might impact post-op opioid usage. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, I think that's probably one of the important things with this type of study is trying to control for those factors, isn't it? And I agree. So um, moving on to the results of the study, um, just to reiterate for our listeners, in terms of the patients included, there was just under 100,000 patients, 98,769, large data set. Um, and of these, was a range of procedures performed, like you say, just under a third of those were total knee replacement and a range of hip arthroplasty and spinal fusions and over 10,000 carpal tunnel releases and almost 20,000 rotator cuff repairs. Uh, and for these, just to reiterate for our listeners, you looked at chronic opioid use after surgery among opioid naive patients and also opioid cessation rates amongst, amongst chronic preoperative users and, and the effects of stopping opioids before surgery among the, amongst the chronic use in particular. So could you just detail the key findings in relation to the pre and postoperative opioid use, particularly in relation, I suppose, like we said, to the opioid naive and chronic users? Um, so I think, uh, so some of these answers are going to overlap with the rest of the questions too, but, um, so well, firstly, the proportion of chronic, uh, we looked at the proportion of chronic pre-op and post-op opioid users, and this pretty much varied all across the board. Uh, for the most part, as expected, patients who were undergoing surgery for more debilitating conditions, which included total joint arthroplasties and spinal fusions, they obviously had high rates of chronic pre-op opioid usage, and then, uh, obviously also had lower uh, proportion of opioid naive individuals. Um, so, so how do these uh, figures vary between the ranges of procedures you looked at in the study? So again, back to the same, I think uh, procedures which were done for more debilitating conditions, which were spinal fusions, total joint arthroplasties, again, they had typically higher rates of uh, chronic pre-op opioid usage and, and a low rate of opioid naive individuals. These individuals were also more likely to continue using opioid chronically in the post-operative period specifically. Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's, like you say, there's just so much interesting data there. I, was, I remember looking at the table, the third table, and like the, the, the chronic post-operative opioid use and the total hit replacement was almost similar to the carpal tunnel release. It's, it's just fascinating, these figures and seeing them um, like that. It's just sometimes not what you would expect, really. Um, but so, and what did you find with regards to the risk factors for the chronic post-operative opioid use? Um, so... I think most of the risk factors which we were found are well detailed in literature for the most part. I think the most uh, important or the key finding of uh, with regards to risk factors was that one, the biggest risk factor is always going to be those patients who were taking opioids pre-operatively. They're they're always going to uh, end up uh, turning into chronic post-op opioid users. Um, and I think moving on to the next sort of the next uh, part is that patients, uh, even among these chronic opioid users, those who actually had a three-month opioid-free period before surgery, they actually had a better cessation rate. Exactly. So they actually 
uh, had the lower rates of continued op opioid usage. And that, so it really means that patients who had that opioid weaning protocol in place or who had an opioid free period, they actually ended up doing much better than chronic opioid users. And this Absolutely. is a finding which is really um, helpful to surgeons primarily because it really gives support to the fact that we really need to look at uh, possibly launching a broad uh, opioid weaning protocol across institutions all across the U.S. Absolutely, absolutely. So and that sort of moves us nicely, Zim, on to sort of the, the greater implications and the other study. So um, the trends are obviously without questions, very large data set, very robust analysis performed. Uh, it's, it's clearly gone a long way into characterizing the preoperative and postoperative opioid use patterns among patients undergoing a range of common elective procedures, orthopedic procedures. Uh, so just to summarize, again, what do you feel the key findings of the work are, but I suppose in, with a caveat of any potential limitations of the data? Okay, so I'll start off with the key finding, which I'm yeah. going to repeat, is essentially the fact that in chronic, if you have a chronic post, uh, a chronic pre-op opioid user, uh, if you give them a three-month opioid-free period, they're more, uh, they're less likely to actually end up um, taking opioids continuously in the post-op period. Mm -hmm. um, and with regards to the limitations, I think one of the drawbacks of using these insurance claims data sets are that they actually rely on billing instances, which means that you have a bunch of coders in the hospital who are sitting somewhere down in the basement, uh, putting in codes, uh, sending this information to the insurance company. And obviously human error is something which we cannot remove from this uh, source of data. Uh, there are always going to be some miscoding. There are always going to be uh, missed patients. Uh, but for the most part, I think the power of the study primarily relies in the fact that it's a, such a large sample size that even if there are some miscoding, uh, we're pretty much accounting for that. No, I totally, I totally agree. And I think given that like you say you, you can't account for those, those, uh, those errors, but one way you can account for it is by having such a large data set like you, like you have. And in terms of the, the previous literature, how does the, how do you feel this fits in or how does it compare and particularly maybe to the type of procedure performed? What do you think it tells us in regards to that? So I can tell you that most of the prior literature has largely focused on identifying risk factors for post-op opioid usage. They haven't exactly looked at identifying whether an opioid-free period may actually impact post-op opioid usage. So that was essentially the main step of our study, was to somehow prove to everyone that, hey, these patients are actually not taking opioids within the last three months, and they actually have a better cessation rate as compared to uh, patients who continuously uh, take opioids for the most part. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I think one of the other, I mean, just moving on finally to one of the, I think the other interesting findings of the study and something you talk about um, in the discussion is that the study has suggested that orthopedic surgery, our intervention, decreases chronic opioid use on a population level. How, I mean, how does that, I suppose, how does that fit into the literature and where do, where do we go forward with that? How, how do we take that forward? So I think this is pretty much an intuitive finding, right? Because most musculoskeletal conditions are really debilitating to begin with. And right, like I said, patients do end up taking pain medications. So if they do have the option of undergoing surgery, I mean, if you think about it, total and orthoplasty is technically um, can be declared the surgery of the decade, right? Not, not of the decade, but of the surgery of the century, right? Because you do a total joint orthoplasty and um, an individual can essentially regain that functionality, which they did not have before. Um, so obviously they would not have to resort to pain medication. So obviously on a societal level, you're going to see patients not taking opioids to begin with. Um, but at the same time, um, I mean, it's sort of a, a conundrum. It doesn't exactly mean that orthopedic surgery would lead to reduced opioid levels. We were just saying that Due to improved access of care, now that patients can get surgery for these uh, degenerative elective conditions, you would likely see less people taking opioids for 
simply managing these uh, pathologies. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you've also already alluded to it, but in terms of the implications of the study moving forward, what, what do you think the key, the key thing is from this study? I think the next step would be one to sort of identify what would be the right opioid weaning protocol. How long do we make patients wait? And if we do make patients wait, what are the alternative pain medications we can place them on? Because obviously we can't just take them off opioids and ask them to like wait for that six, six week or three month period for the most part, because that is obviously not going to be great for their functionality. Um, and I think the last thing would also be to look at the new methods of multimodal analgesia, which are kind of coming out. So that would be also an effective way of curbing the post-operative opioid uh, burden too. No, I agree. That's, that's really good. Well, as you may think, that's probably all we have time for today, but thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on a really excellent study that is without doubt an invaluable addition to the literature in the air and given us all much food for thought. So thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And to our listeners, we do hope you've enjoyed joining us and we encourage you to share your thoughts and comments through Twitter, Facebook and the like. Feel free to post or tweet about anything we have discussed here today and thanks again for joining us.